Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of song. It renews our hearts. It opens our minds. It reminds us of years past when we sang them before. And it reminds us of how bright the day is when we sing them anew. May you keep your songs and your word forever fresh in our minds that we might learn anew and follow you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. I would like to take you on a small word exercise. Um, You know that I'm a teacher. I'm supposed to be able to do things like this and get away with it. So here it goes. No math this morning, just some words. So I'm going to pretend I'm a CA teacher instead of a math teacher. So take a moment and remember how powerful words can be. Um, It's pretty simple exercise. You simply hear a word or a phrase that I share, let your whole being experience it, and then as I start to say the next word, you'll have to let that experience go, and you'll have to grab on to the next one. So if you can, hear it, experience it, and then let it go, and do the same for the next word, and the one after that, and the one after that. You actually do this every day. It's just that you're not as focused as you are right now. I hope. I hope. So, a good word to start with. Shalom. Think about it, dwell on it, and then let it go. Samaritan. A good Samaritan. Traditional. Empire. Black Lives Matter. Neighbor. LGBT, math, justice, police shooting, shooting police. Love, holiness, lunch, sin, peace. Calculus, marriage, (laughs) 
Dallas, Baton Rouge, Falcon Heights. Kingdom of God. Drones. Refugees. Jesus, Messiah, death, cross, resurrection, grace, mercy, reconciling, shalom. For me, these phrases words, and at least 20 to 50 to 100 others stir my mind. They stir my soul. They are emotionally and mentally and spiritually alive. You do this exercise every time you look on the internet and listen to the news or read the news. You flip through the headlines and the words just pop into your brain And they give us some type of a reaction. They either start us off on a thought or move us to tears or to laughter. The power of words. They can lead some of us to do violence. And they can lead others to do love. Needless to say, words are powerful. And it is the context in which they are spoken that gives them the opportunity to change lives. Did you hear Kristen read the parable of the Samaritan? Did you listen as an expert of the Mosaic law? Or did you mull it over in your heart as a a disciple who was still trying to understand this amazing rabbi who had called you personally to follow him? Or maybe you listened as if you were just one of the crowd that gathered in each of the villages, seeing and hearing fragments of Jesus' ministry. Our personal perspective influences what we hear and how we act. It seems that our own personal perspective is crucial in how we hear, understand, and live with Jesus. Kristen's words, my words, they filled the air without a beat, without a tune, without a rhythm, without a band, and without a video. Just words. So why should we spend time listening to a means of communication that is the least popular in today's culture? Because we well-placed words within the right context, can change someone's life. And because not just speakers or preachers, but we all rely on a God who created the world with the spoken word. We depend on a Jesus who raised the dead, cast out demons, healed the lame, set the captives free, 
and taught the ways of the kingdom, speaking words, just words to thousands of people. God spoke in the Old Testament, Jesus spoke during his ministry, and the Spirit speaks today to our hearts and our minds. Words are powerful, most powerful if they can lead us somewhere. Some words bring a welcomed peace of mind, others can lead us to some type of action. Not just an emotional action, but I would hope also physical and prayerful action. And at the end of today's parable, there's action words. The end of the parable simply says this, go and do likewise. Jesus' words were meant to cause the listener to take action. This authoritative teaching of Jesus requires us to engage in a process of hearing, listening, and responding. These words can be heard and held captive in our conscience, defeating us, depressing us, and distracting us from life-giving action. Or, these words can be heard and held captive in our conscience, stirring our conscience, renewing our minds, transforming our lives, and moving us into life-giving actions with the help of the Holy Spirit. This parable of Jesus was meant to do the latter. Renew the mind and transform the listener in order to engage in life-giving acts of faith and love. We have no idea if the lawyer liked what he heard, or if he, if he acted on what he heard. We could judge him, and we could probably say, well, he was stuck in his old Jewish ways. He was a lawyer. He's not going to change. But the answer is not in the text. Luke shared this story about what Jesus shared with the lawyer so that we might respond. The parable seems to be less about the lawyer and more about how we, you and me, the listener, will respond. And this takes thoughtfulness. Processing the spoken word takes time, effort. It means reflecting on the word and deliberately seeing if it has a place in our hearts and in our minds. And that was Jesus' challenge to the lawyer. And it's his, his challenge to us also. The parables of Jesus filled the air without a beat, without a tune, without a rhythm, without a band, and without a video. They were living words. Breathed by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit so that the listener might respond. But hey, I'm guilty of having ears and not hearing. I'm guilty of having heard but not really listened. And so if I think I've heard and I might have listened, my response was either missing or incorrect. I recently joined this caravan of people that went to Maine this summer and um, while we were traveling up to Maine, we sometimes went through places that were confusing or we just weren't sure of our way or maybe things looked a little odd to us. So we would turn on our little GPS device, you know, that all-knowing thing. 
And it's the one that talks, of course, the one that tells you when to do this and when to do that. It speaks very authoritatively. But more than once, while I was driving, I would just simply do something completely contrary to what the voice had said for me to do. It would cause a bit of disturbance in the car. Let me say that again. If I went contrary to what the box said, there was a bit of disturbance in the car. And so the GPS and the rest of us would have to make some adjustments. And soon we'd be on our way correctly. So yes, we can hear. We hear lots of things. Right now some of you are hearing me, but mm, I'm not going to ask anything else. You may not really be listening. And then you may not even want to take that on to a further chance of doing something in response. But this is what Jesus is teaching was to invoke, and this is what the gospel writers wanted us to capture for hundreds and thousands of years afterwards of what they experienced when Jesus taught the first time. These words. And simply spoken words like these can simply become very dull to our ears. So we want to jazz them up in our culture with videos and music and bands and rhythm and patterns. But this, this is the medium by which God has changed and is changing the world. Here's a few examples from Jesus. He spoke simply to a woman at the well. And she said, the Messiah will show us. And Jesus said, I am he. And Jesus said to a confused woman, At the tomb, Mary. Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are the poor. Jesus said to Nicodemus, You must be born again. And to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? And to the lawyer, Go and do the same. It is the word of God that reshapes the world into the islands of the kingdom of God. When the good news is proclaimed and lived, then those who see and hear have a chance to respond. It is the foundation of Christ that we continue to build on with all these other kingdom things. So those who are seeking God or are seeking to share the pain with anyone, we need to hear what Jesus says and what he did. The thread that we're following this morning from the story of the Good Samaritan is one that binds us to our faith. The question is a simple one. (laughs) What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it comes with a well-known answer. Even the lawyer knew the answer. The answer was simple. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And if loving God isn't enough, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. Can I just say that there doesn't seem to be a lot of discretionary effort 
for us to pursue other things? If all my being is caught up in loving God, and if everyone around me is my neighbor, what of me? To which Paul might say something like this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. There is room for little else, it seems, as we live out the two greatest commandments. Are they really meant to consume us? For the question of eternal life, the lawyer answers his own question. He gives the best two answers possible, and Jesus says, Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, the expert in the Mosaic law, seems to have needed a bit more to live by, or to flatter himself. Or as the text says, he wanted to justify himself. From a teacher's point of view, he'd already aced the test. He'd already gotten an A. But he was looking for an A+. He had said the right words, but he was a little concerned about justifying his actions. In his mind, he had the first commandment in his pocket, and he wanted to make sure he got the second part right. He probably had the first commandment in his pocket because of who he really was. He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He was a teacher of the law. He was loving God with all of his life. So he seems to have this vertical relationship in great shape. But he seemed to need some extra wording on the horizontal relationship, on the clause, who is my neighbor? And this came from a person who was trying to justify himself. And Jesus doesn't seem to be too interested in people justifying themselves. So he rewords the question. Or he gives a different unexpected answer. And then he even throws a real winger in there because he doesn't just tell a nice Jewish story about the past. He throws in the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, as you've heard, are not very much loved by the Jewish people in this time. When Jesus puts the Samaritan in the story, he opens up the door to racism, segregation, and hate. The Jews and the Samaritans were not good neighbors. They wouldn't talk to each other, they wouldn't worship together, and they spoke against one another. If you just back up in Luke's account to chapter 9, just briefly, there's this story. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Remember, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem and the Samaritans worshipped on this mountain. And so when his disciples, James and John, saw the Samaritans' response, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. 
Were these guys good neighbors? The disciples wanted to burn the town. Our perspective from which we hear strongly affects what we believe and what we are willing to do. I'm so glad for the Samaritans that Jesus turned and rebuked them. I'm glad for Jesus who spoke to the disciples and turned and rebuked them and that they went on to another town. Jesus needed to do some radical revealing about the kingdom of God to his disciples, James and John. They had a bad attitude about their neighbors in Samaria. Jesus needed to work really hard at taking their perspective and turn it into his perspective. And so I wonder if in Luke's account, this account of of sending fire down in the Samaritan village is just in chapter 9. And Luke, within a short section of the gospel, is sharing this story about the good Samaritan and the lawyer. Remember, Jesus was teaching his disciples along with all the other things that he was accomplishing. But he was first and foremost, with his disciples, a teacher. So Jesus dismisses the question, who is my neighbor? He reframes it. He simply starts to tell the story about a man. It's, the person in the ditch is unnamed. And that's a good thing. Because that lets us not get off the hook. Which is, I think, what the Jewish lawyer was trying to do. Because in his day, the lawyer thought of a neighbor as being only a person of his kind. One of his own blood. One that was like him. So this idea of neighbor for the Jewish person at that time was not a Samaritan. And it was not A Gentile. And so that was the answer he was probably hoping for. Jesus would say, take care of your own people. But this unnamed man in the ditch, full of pain, doesn't let us get away with that answer. It's a human being who needs help. Now you could think there are many in the world who are filled with pain and who need help. So Jesus lets us know in this parable that it's not everybody necessarily, but it's those that we can reach out and touch. And those are the ones that we may pass by every day. This man was on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe a daily walk, maybe a special occasion, but in either case, it was a part of his day. So yes, there's many in pain, but there's only so many that we can actually reach out and touch. So ask yourself this question. Do I behave as a merciful Samaritan neighbor to those who are different from me 
and have a need of love and help in the places I walk and in the communities in which I live. What might this look like, this reaching out and touching someone that you walk by on a daily basis? Go again with me to that imaginary place. Hear these phrases. Hold on to one, let it be a part of you, and then let it go for the next. These will sound familiar. He came near him. And seeing him for what he really was, a nobody, stripped of his clothes, robbed, beaten and half dead. He felt deep pity. He went to him. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. He tore his clothing and bandaged the man's wounds. He puts him in his own car. He brought him to an inn. He sacrificed his time and took care of him. He took out two days of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, I will pay you, repay you whatever more you may spend. Were any of you able to walk every one of those steps with the Samaritans' ministry to the man in the ditch? Did you grow tired or dismayed? Did any of you get stuck at a particular task? I know my son Caleb would say, Dad, I don't do blood. Well, there is plenty to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It might be your calling, personally, or it might even take a whole church. Total care, this total care package that Jesus gives in response to the question is pretty huge. It takes me back a few years to when we ministered in Cincinnati. We saw a family that was completely unlike us. The mother was in a painful relationship with her husband. She'd also been in abusive relationships with other members of her family. And our response was multifaceted. 
It included friendship, prayer, financial assistance, financial counseling, biblical counseling, discipleship, baptism, temporary housing in our home for her and her children, continued care even after she found an apartment to live in. And the church was also involved, but it was new territory for all of us, and some of us warmed warmed to it more than others. We have not repeated this full involvement scenario, but I hope that it has shaped our family's actions since in a smaller yet more and also meaningful way. At its simplest level, this parable is about self-giving love, love in action, where we roll up our sleeves and help no matter what it takes. It's precisely the kind of work that we think about when we think of ourselves here at East Justin Street. But the next level down, it's a story designed to split our perception of the world wide open. It's left to give us some unexpected light. Instead of the closed world of Jesus' hearers in which their own were their neighbors, Jesus demands that we recognize that even the hated and feared Samaritans were to be a neighbor. So can you recognize someone that you are at odds with, that you may disagree with, that may live differently than you, culturally, socially, economically, theologically, practically? If you see one of those who are other than you in pain, can you do as the Good Samaritan? I could have saved a lot of time here and simply said, love your enemy. But really, that's what Jesus calls us to do. Whoever that other person may be, do as the Samaritan did. Do as Jesus did. To help us process this, I'd ask that you take the songbook, sing the story, turn to 117, let's stand please.